0: Romans chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 25 today is our text. The Bible says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that the sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am the I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not do is what... I keep on, the evil that I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I want to do or do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Let us pray. Father, we come to you again this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this gracious privilege that you've given us to come and to worship you freely, to worship you uh, without threat. And Father, I ask that as we continue our worship service and we engage the truth of your word, that the Holy Spirit would speak to us, that the Holy Spirit would Give us ears to hear and minds to understand that your word will become that implanted truth in our inner man, our inner being that changes the way we think and changes the way we live in this world. We thank you, Lord, for the word that you have given us and the truth that is therein. And we ask that you would use this vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. This in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you will (coughs) recall... Over the last several weeks, we have been dealing with Romans chapter 6 and 7, and we've been really following Paul's argument against several objections, objections that he had no doubtedly seen earlier in his ministry as he had gone from synagogue to synagogue, sharing the truth of the gospel of grace, this righteousness apart from the law through faith alone and Christ alone, and these objections had been raised probably more, more than likely from his Jewish audience. And so he's been bringing these objections up in a preemptive way to deal with them ahead of those who might have this in their mind. And so we saw the first objection raised in a question in chapter 6 and verse 1 where Paul said, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And you know how Paul answered that. He said emphatically, no, just because we have grace doesn't give us the freedom to continue sinning. And if you remember in that argument, Paul really helped us understand that grace is no friend to sin. And so Paul said it is absurd to think that a believer should continue to sin because they're in grace. After all, we have died And been buried with Christ. Our our old man is dead and we are alive in Christ Jesus in a new and and regenerate way to live and walk in newness of life. And then the second objection he raised was in chapter 6 verse 15. He says, what then are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? And again, Paul emphatically answered, no, we should not sin just because we're no longer under the binding aspect of the law in the sense that it finds us guilty and brings a curse upon us because we in no way can fulfill the law in our flesh but we are under the law of grace, if you will, and we are, we are free from the bonds of the law, but we are slaves now to righteousness in Christ Jesus. And then the third objection is raised in chapter seven and verse seven. And Paul says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? And again, Paul answers in an emphatic no. The law is not sin. As a matter of fact, his conclusion at the end of that section of Romans 7 was that the law is holy and that the commandment is righteous and the commandment is good. So it's not the law that is the problem. He says it is sin in us that is the problem. And so we should not continue to sin just because uh, we, we are free from this law, it is not the law is not the problem. It's good. It's doing what it ought to do. It's showing us that we are sinners. And we are free from its curse. We are free from the guilt of the law. And we are free now to serve Christ in light of the regenerative work that God has done for us and through us. And the law is holy and righteous and good. And that leads us to our section today where Paul asks and answers another question. This question, however, I think is really a follow-up to the question we find in Romans chapter seven and verse seven, because it still speaks of this idea of the law and the goodness of the law. He says, did what is good then bring death to me? In other words, did this good, holy, righteous law cause death in me in a spiritual sense and Ultimately, in a physical sense, if the Lord tarries. And Paul's answer to that question is an emphatic no again. The problem, he says, again, is not the law, but it is sin that brings this death to us. And that's what he's going to unpack for us in our text today. But as we come to this text, we need to understand this is probably, uh, according to most commentaries that you read most people who speak on this text, is probably the most debated text in the in the letter to the Romans. And the reason is is because of the language that Paul uses in regard to himself and we will have to deal with that language today to understand what Paul is saying to us because We have just heard from Paul in chapter 6 that we are dead to sin. Sin shall have no dominion over you. We are made alive in Christ. The old man is dead. We are brought to new life in Jesus Christ. We're not under the bondage of the law. We're not under the bondage of sin. Yet in our section today, it seems as though Paul is saying that the very thing that I do not want to do, i.e. sin, is the very thing that I end up doing. So how do we reconcile what Paul has already told us with what Paul is about to tell us today? And so in that sense, it is somewhat a difficult passage for us to work through. And there's great debate over who the I is in this passage, and we will deal with that as we go through this text. So to help us unpack this today. We're going to look at it by way of five headings, Lord willing and time permits. First, we're going to look at this question that was raised in verse 13 and Paul answers. The secondly, we're going to discuss this issue of who this I is, this, this ego in this uh, text is. Then thirdly, we're going to look at the Christian's continued struggle with sin so I've already laid my cards on the table for you just in the title of that heading. Fourthly, fourthly, we're going to look at four laws that Paul, actually I think it's three laws is the way I ended up dividing it up. Three laws that Paul talks about in this text to kind of summarize what he's trying to tell us. And then finally, we're going to look at our final victory in, in verses 24 and 25. So that's kind of our roadmap. map through this particular text. So first, let us look at this question that Paul raises and answers for us. And we've seen this before, it's nothing new. Paul raises this question, this objection, he answers it and he lays a theological foundation for his answer. And so the question is in verse 13, did that which is good, in other words, did this law, this moral code of God, the 10 commandments, did that bring death to? to me. That's the question. Is what is good? The law bring death to me. And Paul's answer is his familiar answer in all of these objections. Meganoita. May it never be. May it never come to existence is really the idea behind it. It is absurd of you to think that this law, which is good, brought death to you. And then he gives us the explanation for that emphatic answer of no. He lays some theological framework. And then I think the rest of this chapter is helping us understand this theological framework in a practical way. He says, it was it It, it was sin. So the implication is it wasn't the law, sin is the problem. Sin is what is producing death in me through what is good. So you see, this is really a follow-up to what Paul was telling us earlier in, in Romans 7 because earlier we had the same idea that it wasn't the law, it was sin that used the law as a tool to bring death and sin into my life. What did the law do? The law showed me exactly what sin was. You remember Paul reminded us That before the law came, he had no idea of guilt and no idea of sinfulness, right? He he didn't have that, that feeling of guilt in that he had broken God's commandment before he understood the law. But when the law came, he saw exactly what sin was. The problem is that sin is so devious that sin used the law and what the law told us we could not do and what we ought to do to tantalize our fleshly desires. Just like you and I, as we mentioned before, whenever we see the sign that says, don't touch wet paint, the first thing we want to do is touch to make sure that they are telling us the truth, right? So the sin in us was aroused by these, uh, the, the Decalogue, this law that God had given us and sin used it as a weapon against us to tempt us and lead us into more sinfulness. And then Paul goes on, in our text, to tell us, hey, here's the reason that this is the way it is. In order that, that henna clause, that sin might be shown sin. We've already talked about that. The reason the law came was to show us what was sinful. Now, does that mean sin didn't exist before the law came? Well, no, it didn't. How do we know that? Because Paul is already reminded us of that in Romans chapter four. He says, listen, sin reigned all right, and from the time Adam fell all the way up until the law. How do we know that sin reigned? Because the companion of sin is death and death reigned from Adam to Moses. So we know that sin was there. Men were just not fully aware of what the total aspect of sin was and the total depth of their sinfulness until God codified that for them, for us in the 10 commandments. So the law came to be our schoolmaster to show us what sin was and through the commandment, through the law, through the Decalogue, that it might become sinful beyond measure. Now, if you've never read this sermon, just you can go look it up. It's uh, called The Sinfulness of Sin. Uh, Go look that sermon up and read it. And it's based on this idea of the magnitude of sinfulness that we do not understand apart from the sovereign work of God demonstrating to us, in us, through the manifestation of his law, through the manifestation of his character, the full brunt of our sinfulness. It's like we learned on Wednesday night when we went through Psalm 51. You remember David understood this, but what, what was the key aspect of David's understanding this in Psalm 51? He said to God in this, re, this, this Psalm of repentance, this Psalm seeking God's forgiveness, he said, I have sinned against you and you alone. Well, did David not sin against Uriah? Did David not sin against Bathsheba? Did David not sin against his own family? Did David not sin against Israel? Yes, he sinned against all of those people in that act he had with Bathsheba. But the depth of our sin and the magnitude of our sin must be understood in this way, that every sin that I commit, while it may be against other people, may it be against my own body, it is ultimately and always against a holy righteous, eternal God. Therefore, the punishment for that sin in my life deserves an eternal aspect of judgment because I have sinned against an eternal God. I am in rebellion against God when I sin against God's commandment. And so in that way, the law shows us the magnitude and the depth of, of our sinfulness. And so that leads us to our next heading because I think Paul begins to help us understand what verse 13 means by fleshing out this battle that goes on within the human being uh, as it relates to this issue of sin and this issue of grace. And in order for us to understand this, we've got to first deal with this aspect or at least answer the question, who is the I in this text? Now we won't take time to go back through it and read it again. You ought to do that, and you ought to take your little ballpoint pen or your highlighter as you go through this text and circle the word I in the English, circle the word me and my in the English and see how that leaps off the page to you because it will help us understand, I think, what it is that Paul is trying to communicate to us as it relates to who this I is. And the reason this is important, this is the heart of the debate for this text. This is the heart of the debate of the text that we have just read today, verses 13 through 25, in particular 14 through 25. The question is, who is Paul talking about in this passage? And there are at least three major ideas of who Paul is talking about or referring to although it may be himself, in what capacity is Paul referring to himself, or in what capacity is Paul referring to another human being using himself as an example? The first concept of what or who the I is, is that this is a pious Jew. This is a this is a lost person, but more, more particularly a pious Jew who understood to some extent, the law of God. We know that the Jews flubbed up the idea of the law of God in the first century, right? But they at least had the oracle of God and their their superficial desire was to fulfill the law of God and to make other people uh, do the same. So mo- a lot of people look at Paul's declaration of this "I" as maybe himself as a Jew who had a knowledge of the law and desperately was trying to uh, fulfill the law, but could not fulfill the law in his flesh. Thus, he needed some outside force to come in and do a work in him to bring him to the place where he could, in fact, <coughs> excuse me, fulfill the law. The second aspect is maybe this is a a a young believer or rather a carnal believer a person who has come to faith and they were still weak in their faith and they didn't fully grasp who they were in Christ Jesus so they continue in the outset to struggle with this issue of sin. And then thirdly is the argument that Paul is talking about himself as a mature Christian and the ongoing battle of sin versus grace that is manifest in the life of of every believer. Now while there are good arguments for all of those, and there are some who even argue that hey, this is not even Paul's point to begin with, and we shouldn't even worry about that debate. Paul's merely trying to tell us that hey, the law in and of itself can't bring sanctification, nor can the flesh bring about sanctification. That sanctification is ultimately brought about by the work of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. And there's some great merit to that particular concept because we know that both of those are true right and that probably if I if I laid all my faults out before you probably that is one of the best ways to look at this text that Paul is letting us know that sanctification can only come through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life it never comes by one's trying to fulfill the law and your flesh will never allow you to fulfill the law it will always point you toward sinfulness. But I think there's some compelling evidence in this text that helps us understand that the I in this passage is Paul, and it is Paul in a mature state as a believer. And to illustrate that, again, if you were to take that pencil or that pen or that highlighter and you were to highlight every occurrence of the first person pronoun I, ego, in the Greek... You would see that it happens at least 23 times in verses 14 to 25. Paul uses the personal pronoun I and to reference himself. So most normal people who would read this text would have to at least admit that in some way, whatever that way may be, in some way Paul is talking about himself, right? Right? To add to that, he uses the, the pronoun me or my 14 times in these same verses. So, you know, you're looking at 37, almost 40 times that Paul is referring to himself in this text. In my mind, that's pretty good uh, evidence that Paul is at least talking about himself. Okay, now does that validate that he's talking about himself as a Jew before salvation, or as a weak Paul early in his salvation, or as a mature Paul? No, that doesn't give us uh, any inclination on who he's what what part of his life he's talking about. But I think the use of the verbs in this passage do give us insight into what Paul is talking about, because Paul uses thirty times. Present active verbs in verses 14 through 25. Now if you go back to the previous section, a lot of those verbs were in the past tense. More often than not in the aorist past, a simple act that had been done in the past. And Paul shifts this um, time frame related to when he is speaking to the present active Tense, present, active, indicative, most of the time, every now and then there's a participle thrown in there. But Paul is saying that what he is describing is something that he is experiencing in his time frame, in the present, in his life. Now to me, that is the ultimate one of the ultimate evidences that Paul is talking about himself as a mature believer, and this is the battle that he faces, and by extension, the battle that all of us as Christians face. But I think there's even more evidence to the reality that Paul's talking about himself, who who is a saved, regenerate follower of Christ, who is struggling with this issue. And that's in verses 18, 19, and 20. Uh, uh, 22. If you just go to look at the phrase that he says in these passages, he says, for I know that there's nothing good that dwells in me and he gives a qualifier that is in my flesh and then he says, for I have the desire to do what is right. Well, unregenerate people do not have the desire to follow after the law of God. We've learned that quite plainly in Romans chapter 3. We learn that also in Romans chapter 8 in verse 4. We do not, apart from the regenerative work of Christ, have the desire to do the law of God. And then he goes on in verse 19. I do not do the good I want. So again, he has this desire and this passion within him to do the good of the law. And then look at verse 22 with me. And this is the, this is the, this is the clincher uh, as it relates to this issue that Paul is talking about himself as a believer, one who has been redeemed by God. He's have a regenerate heart. He says, for I delight in the law of God in the inner man. So in my inmost being, my desire and my passion is to do what God has commanded me to do. The lost person does not have that desire. The lost person cannot have that desire if you look at what Paul says later in Romans chapter 8 and I believe in verse 4. So to me, those two things married together at least bring me to the conclusion that Paul is talking about himself in the present when he is writing this. And this is the battle of his life and this is the battle of every believer's life. And I think we can validate that just from what we've already learned in the book of Romans as it relates to this idea of the already not yet aspect of the kingdom of God and how that is demonstrated in the concept of sanctification. Because you know we have already learned from Paul that sanctification is manifest in three categories we have positional sanctification god has declared us to be sanctified and we'll see that again when we get to romans chapter 8 not only that god tells us that one day we will be sanctified right well that there's a day of culmination that's coming when christ comes again in that great day of his our glorification when this body of flesh, this body of sin is done away with and we're given a brand new body, a redeemed body, if you will, to match the redeemed spirit that we have. And so that is our perfect or perfected sanctification. But in the meantime, between those two is this idea of progressive sanctification. We are in the process of being sanctified. And Paul talked about that before. The author of Hebrews has talked about that when we're in the book of Hebrews. Those who are being sanctified, that's us. And that is indicative of this battle that takes place in our soul and in our body, between our spirit and our body. And so we're going we're gonna to unpack that as we go through the remainder of this text. So just so you know where I'm coming from, I believe this is Paul speaking of himself in the present tense, in his life, in the moment that he was writing this, that this is a battle that he, that he fights every day, just like it's a battle that you and I fight every day. And you and I don't have to go long in our life to see that this reflects our life, right? Right? Uh, unless you're all different than I am. uh, I don't have to go far in my life to see this reflects my life to a T, right? The things that I don't want to do seem to be the things that I always end up doing and the things that I want to do so often are the things that I do not end up doing. And there's this battle that is waging in me because of this dead flesh that I drag around with me. And so Paul begins to meet this out for us in, in this text. And so as we begin to look at verses 14 through uh, 25, we, we got to step back just a second and look at Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Because Paul has already given us a hint that this sanctification that God is doing in us is progressive and that we are called to act Volitionally to join God in this work of sanctification in our life. Look with me in in chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Now that's a command that Paul gives his readers and Paul gives us. The old man is dead. It's like uh, Dr. Steve Lawson said, Uh, in relation to this text he says that sin once had dominion in our life it no longer has dominion but it still dwells it it once ruled it no longer rules but it still resides in this body and so what is paul telling us in that text He's telling us what he's about to tell us in verses 14 through 25. There is a battle that's waging. And you must decide not to give your members over to sinfulness, but to give your members over to righteousness. And he goes on to say, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. So in that sense, while, hey, I get it, sanctification is all a work of God through the Holy Spirit in my life, but God has called me to come alongside and be obedient in this sanctifying process in my life by me choosing willfully to mortify the flesh, right? And didn't Jesus allude to that? Didn't he? When he says, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, what ought you to do to your eye? Well, you ought to pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, what you ought to do with your hand? You ought to cut it off. What is he saying? Mortify the flesh. Reckon the flesh as dead. It no longer has dominion. It no longer has power. It no longer decides. But the inner man, through the work of the Spirit of God in your life, controls and decides what you do and how you act. And I get it, easy preaching and hard living sometimes. And Paul knew that because of what he's about to tell us. So that brings us to uh, verses 14 through uh, 20, which Paul shares with us this ongoing struggle that he has in his life and by extension the ongoing struggle that you and I have. And there are really two two points I think Paul is making. And again, going back to what I mentioned, uh, mentioned earlier, Really, Tom Schreiner in his uh, commentary uh, made the point that Paul's ultimate point in this is the law can't help you and the flesh can't help you be sanctified. It only is the work of the Holy Spirit that helps you be sanctified. And I think Paul points that out to us. In verse 14, the point is that the law's not able. The law has no ability to bring sanctification in your life because sin is working in, uh, in your life, in your flesh, against what the law is wanting you to do. Look what he says, for we know that the law is spiritual. And that's important because in a moment, Paul's going to tell us again about some laws uh, one of those laws is going to be dealing with the law that relates to the inner man or the mind. And that's the spiritual aspect of who we are. The real Paul or the real me or the real you is that inner man. And so this law is impacts in us in a spiritual way. But he says, listen, but I am of the flesh and sold under sin. Now, I have to be honest with you. This one phrase in this passage is one of the most difficult ones for me to get over and around as it relates to me understanding that this relates to Paul in his present context as a believer. Because I don't fully understand what Paul's saying because he's already told me that the old man is dead and that sin will have no dominion (coughs) over me, right? But he's also told me, hey, big boy, you need to not submit your members to sinfulness, right? You need to submit your members to God. So we see this this, this tension, if you will, in this aspect of progressive sanctification. But the only way I can get past this is the overwhelming evidence in this text is showing me that Paul has been regenerate he has been redeemed because in the inner man he desires this law that is holy good and righteous but this dead body that he carries around with him this flesh is still prone to sinfulness verse 15 he goes on to say for i do not understand my actions and we should say amen amen Right there, right? Because sometimes I do not understand the stupidity that comes from this mind and this mouth and this body. All right? And I know you're not like me. That only applies to me. But I do not understand my actions sometimes. That's why I say we don't have to go far into this text for all of us to understand that this relates to us. No matter what the theologians debate about, I see myself in this passage. Right? And so that is evidence enough in itself, right? In an anecdotal kind of way. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. So again, Paul wants and desires to do the will of God. That is the heart of every believer, That's the heart of every regenerate man and woman, boy and girl, is the desire to do what God has asked us to do, the desire to be obedient to God, the desire to bring glory and honor to his name. But the problem we have is this dead body that we carry with us every single day. And so again, these validate, these terms validate to me that Paul is talking about himself as a believer because he desires to do what the law says and he does not desire to do the things he hates well unbelievers don't hate their sin necessarily right so again it points paints this picture of a regenerate uh, a born-again person verse 16 now i do what i now i do what i do not want tongue twister i agree with the law that it is good In other words, he's saying, whenever I do this sinfulness, the law shows me the sinfulness that I am doing because I realize that I don't need to do it. I don't want to do it. I hate it because it's contrary to God's law. So in that sense, God's law is good. But the problem is just knowing that does not bring about sanctification in my life. And Paul sees this dichotomy, if you will, between the spirit, and the flesh, verse 17, he says, so it is no longer I who do it, who, who do it. In other words, it's not the, it's not the real Paul. It's not the Paul who's been regenerated. It's not the inner man. It's not the one who's got the redeemed heart. It is the flesh. It is the flesh that leads me in to sinfulness, but it is sin that dwells within me. Me, and in particular within this flesh, it ties back up to verse 14. And Paul uses this same language in both of these uh, sections of Scripture. If you look at verses 18 through 20, Again, he says, I'm in the flesh, and then if you go to verse 20, it's no longer I who do it, but sin dwells in me. So the problem's not the law, the problem is sin, and sin in particular that is in my flesh. So the law is not able to bring sanctification. The second point he makes in this section is that the flesh cannot help us either, because the flesh is prone to sin, and sin, it dwells in this old rotten Fleshly, decaying, dead body, verse eighteen, for I know that nothing good dwells in me now he makes this qualifier in this text. this me he 's talking about is it the flesh in the inner man, there is good, the law of God is in the heart of the inner man, the desire to accomplish that is in the heart of the inner man, the inner man has been regenerated, the holy spirit comes into the inner man, but the flesh there is nothing good in the flesh it is prone to sinfulness for i have this desire to do what is right again it's, it's really a recapitulation of what paul has already said in verses 14 through 17 i've got the desire to do it but not the ability because of this flesh that is around me it's i, I can't do it in and of myself is what paul is saying there's got to be an outside agent who works on my behalf to help me accomplish that which is good And that outside agent ultimately is the Holy Spirit of God through this regenerative work of Christ Jesus. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And we ought to be like this, right, when we read this passage. For now, if if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So Paul is saying, the regenerate man in the spirit, I desire to do the things of God. But this flesh that I drag around with me is always wanting to do do the things of of sinfulness, the things of my fleshly passions and desires. And I think Paul helps us have an understanding of of what he just said in verse, verse, uh, verse 21 through 23. Because Paul kind of summarizes this battle in a sense, if you will. And really, it, it depends on how you break it up. I, I'm going to use uh, the way Dr. Bacham breaks this up. He, he divides it into three laws. Uh, and, and it makes sense to me because if you look at the text with me, you'll see there are at least five ways that Paul uses this idea of law. You see in verse 21, he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So one, there's a law that, hey, I want to do right, but evil is right there with me. The second aspect of his using the law is in verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in the inner man, the real ego, the real me. So that's the law of God, the second law. Then verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war. So that's the third aspect of the law that in this flesh, in my body, in the members, there's a law that wages a war against the inner man and the law of God. And then fourth law that he mentions is waging war against the law of the mind. Now the law of the mind and the inner man really are parallel. They're, 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 they're synonymous, really, because the aspect of the mind in the, in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, has to do with the inner man, the mind, will, and the emotions, right? The central processing unit of who we are, the real me and the real you, the spiritual me and the spiritual you. So that's the fourth aspect of the law. And then he says, and making me captive to the law of sin, that's the fifth aspect, the law of sin that dwells in my members. So the reason I think we can narrow this down to three is because the law of the mind and this law of God in the inner man, I think really are talking about the same thing, the law of God in us that is in the inner man. And this law of of sin, this law of evil that lies close at hand in verse 21, and this law of sin that dwells in my members in verse 23, really are talking about the same thing. So this is that law of indwelling sin. So the three laws that I think we can we can use as an umbrella is the law of God in verses 21 and 22, the law of war, verses 23 and the first part, and then this law of indwelling sin in verse 21 and the last part of verse 23. So the law of God is, we've already made clear through our study of of Romans uh, 6 and 7, the law of God is speaking exclusively about the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. God's written that law on our hearts as believers, and that law is in the inner man, as Paul has already told us in chapter, or in in verse twenty. Too. And so in the inner man, in a regenerate heart, the believer, Paul, the believer, you and I, we desire and have a passion to do the will of God, to be obedient to his law in that inner being. And so our problem is not the inner man, it is the outer man, this Flesh, because the flesh doesn't have the law of God that dwells in it and reigns over it. The flesh is indwelt by sin. If you look at the last part of verse 23, it is that law of sin that dwells in my members. So there's the battle with the with the inner man. We want to do what God has called us to do. We want to be obedient to God. We want to be sanctified as Christ uh, or become like Christ. But our flesh is constantly dragging us toward sinfulness. Our con- flesh is constantly causing us to be tempted toward sinfulness and we continue to give in to the flesh on a regular basis and we have no hope from the law to help us in that we have no hope that the flesh can overcome that there has to be something outside of us that will cause us to be able to win this battle and overcome <coughs> excuse me this war that is waging in our body and that's what Paul is driving to in this argument, and he really kind of gives us a snapshot of that in verses 24 and 25. Paul comes to the conclusion, I am a wretched man, right? I cannot in and of myself overcome this battle. I need help. Look what he says in verse twenty three, or 24. He points out our final victory. He says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who can save me from this flesh, this decaying, putrid, sinful flesh that I carry around with me every day? Paul said, I can't do it myself. Then he gives us the answer in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. How are we rescued from this? How are we given the power and authority to overcome this, to win this battle eventually? It's through Jesus Christ, the indwelling Christ in us, the Holy Spirit of God in us, the redeeming, regenerate work of God in our life, sanctifying us day by day, conforming us to the image of Christ. And so Paul makes this ultimate conclusion Because he knows the already not yet aspect of the kingdom, right? He knows that already God has redeemed him. Already God has declared him righteous and just. But not yet has he fully realized what God has said about him and declared about him. He knows that he still has this problem of the flesh that he drags with him. And he says, so I myself... Now, if if any of those other, you know, pronouns didn't help you figure out Paul was talking about himself, this one ought to, right? Because it's really emphatic. It's altos or egu." I, I myself, there's no question that Paul's talking about himself. I, I myself serve the law of God with the mind, with the inner man, but with the flesh, the law of sin hence Paul is saying Christians will struggle with sin but there is a power within us through the sanctifying work of God that can help us overcome this battle with sin and the longer we walk with him and the more we serve him the stronger we become against this enemy in the flesh which is sin and I wanted to wrap this up because next week in, in chapter 8, Paul's really going to put a nice bow on this for us as he wraps up this idea of the law and the impact of the law in our life and the impact of the Holy Spirit. Because he adds another law to these these really five we saw in, in these verses. He adds the law of the Spirit in, in the first part of, of chapter 8. But in the meantime, I think Spurgeon kind of describes for us the best way to look at what is happening in our lives. And then Paul helps us understand that there is hope in Christ Jesus. Listen to what Spurgeon said when he he wrote about this passage. He says, It was the custom of ancient tyrants when they wished to put men to the most fearful punishment to tie a dead body to them, placing the two back to back. And there was the living man with a dead body closely strapped to him, rotting, putrid, corrupting, and thus he must drag with him wherever he went. Now, this is just what the Christian has to do. He has within him the new life. He has a living and undying principle which the Holy Spirit has put within him, but he feels that every day he has to drag about with him this dead body, this body of death, A thing as loathsome, as as hideous, as abominable to his new life as a dead, stinking carcass would be to a living man. That's the battle. That's what's happening. God's regenerated us in Christ Jesus. But our body is dying and decaying and we drag it with us every day. And it's prone to sinfulness. But there is hope and there is victory in Christ Jesus through the indwelling spirit of the Lord and God can set us free and will set us free once and for all from not only the presence of sin but the power of sin in our life you and I need to be faithful to join him in the sanctifying work that he's doing in our lives by being faithful students of his word, by changing the things that we do to mitigate the temptation that comes into our life, by not presenting our bodies towards sin, by not presenting our bodies toward unrighteousness, but intentionally every day Presenting our members as slaves to righteousness. Mortifying our flesh. And willingly and willfully choosing to be obedient to God. Now, now, don't get me wrong. It's not the doing that saves you and redeems you. It is because you have been saved and redeemed that you can accomplish the doing. Isn't that what Paul told us, really, in Romans chapter 8? That because of what God has done in us, the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in us. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And the strength that he endues endues us with as believers in Christ. So today, you are either a person who is dead in your trespasses and sin and complete rebellion against God with no aspiration of trying to be obedient to God because you don't care about the law of God. You're lost and undone. You're a heartbeat away from the wrath of God. If that's you, you need to come to Christ because God has appointed a day of judgment in which he will judge all the peoples of the earth through this man, Christ Jesus. And he's your only hope to escape that judgment that is to come. And moreover, he's your only hope to help you have a life that is abundant now where you can be obedient to the righteous requirement that God has set upon us in the moral code. Or, the second person, you are a believer and you are dragging this old, dead, rotting, sinful carcass with you every day You're doing that battle. And someday it seems that this stinking carcass gets the best of you. Well, there's hope in Christ. And what we need to do whenever we find ourselves being overwhelmed by the sinfulness in our life, we need to fall on our face before a holy, righteous God. We need to agree with Him that what we have done, what we have said, has been sinful. And we need to to throw ourselves on his mercy and ask God to give us the strength and the the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome this act of sinfulness in our life. And there's not a person in this room who doesn't struggle with sin. In some capacity, some, some greater than others, but all of us struggle with it. But God can help us overcome it, right? He can help us through it. Where every temptation is, there's always a way out. There's always a means of escape. God grants that to us. Let us us seek him every single day in our life. Seek to be more like him. Seek to be strengthened more and more by the person of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That we may reflect the character of God in this world that is around us. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this time you've given us. For the privilege we had, we've had to be in your word and the, the truth of it. And Lord, some of the things we've read today have been difficult and can bring confusion. So I ask, Lord, that you, through the person of the Holy Spirit, that you will lead us into all truth. You promised to do that for us in John chapter 16, Lord. And so I ask that you would use this person of the Holy Spirit to lead us into truth so we can have full understanding of your word, Father God, that we can, through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, overcome this indwelling sin in our flesh. and We'll give you the glory for what you accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, why don't you stand with me turn.